they're uh, incident to keep our musicians humble. <laughs> uh, thankfully, they have a few sense of humor. Um, anyway, we are in Romans chapter 12. And we'll be covering three through five this morning. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Whereas we have many members in one body, but all the same members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. My dad was part of the first offensive in the Pacific Theater in World War II. He had fought both the jungle and the enemy halfway through across New Guinea when he was badly wounded by shrapnel from a mortar round. A friend dragged him under a bush for shade where he lay for at least 24 hours before the medics would bother with him. They kept telling his friend that he was going to die anyway, and they had to focus on the men that they knew they could or felt they could save, which they were right in doing. They finally took him back to the aid station where the doctors took care of him. He was unconscious. He said he didn't know anything for eight weeks, and then he spent the rest of the war over in Grand Rapids Hospital, which was three or four years, I think. Final result of his injury was a piece of shrapnel in the top of his head and a severed nerve in his right arm that had connected to his four fingers. The doctors didn't know then what they do now and were afraid of removing the shrapnel because it might kill him, the operation. And uh, he had me feel it one time and Yep, it's there. <laughs> and they weren't able to reconnect Dad's brain with his four fingers, which made his right hand mostly useless. He was thankful to be able to use his thumb, but not his fingers. They were always in a, like this. So Dad was right-handed, and now he had to learn to use his left like he did his right. There were a lot of things that dad could and did do, but for the most part he was handicapped by having to depend on his left hand to do things that his right hand used to do. For instance, he used to write with his right hand, and as he transferred over to his left hand, he wrote like a right-handed person would made it very difficult for him. 
we know and observed, like Mrs. Walgas, most left-handers right upside down. <laughs> Right-handers like this, left-handers like this. And uh, Dad never did. He never tried that. He continued to write uh, right-handed with his left hand with great difficulty. Uh, and it came out in his writings, obviously. And you can imagine how I blessed I was when I was in Vietnam. And he sat down one day and wrote me a letter. It was very difficult for him. It's something that I should have always kept. Uh, but in a war zone, sometimes that's difficult to do. But this is a picture of the way too many Christians who do not understand or believe in the spiritual part of Romans 12 go through their lives. They are handicapped because they don't understand the spiritual and go about their lives doing God's work their way. Or they don't get involved in his work at all. They can often get much done, even have impressive ministries. But instead of through the power and freedom of believing God, they utilize their abilities and their own power to make things happen. Probably the worst part of this is that they use their position and power of persuasion to convince others through fear and guilt and condemnation to do the same thing. This is why so many well-meaning Christians get tired of trying to do God's work and burn out. I can't do this. Well, God never said they could do that. <laughs> he never asked us to work in our own abilities. He gifts us and gives us the power uh, to do his work. One can only burn out in the flesh, not in the spirit. Spirit guiding us in the gifts he's given us may make us tired at times, but will never burn his child out. This morning, as we look at Romans 12, 3 through 6, many, maybe in a little different light than you've seen before on the subject of gifts and God's work. One can tend to think, who does Walgas think he is bringing out things I've never heard before? You'll notice if you listen closely that I always put God's word and God's work back on him. There's a reason for this very clearly stated in scripture, Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Very simple verse, but... We try to understand that in just our own mind. Uh, we can't understand it. Uh, but those of us who have chosen to believe God's word and what he says, uh, we have no problem with that. It's God's work. Paul in Romans has given us up to date everything that we need to know to live the victorious Christian life, including surrendering to God's will for his life that we've discovered in Romans 12, 1 and 2. But before he goes on to the gifts and God's work for the believer, he emphasizes that before going on, the Christian should have a proper estimation of self. A proper estimation of self. 
shade of meaning that was used in the ancient world to describe a man who is in his... <laughs> a word that is used to describe a man who is in his right mind. Scholars have studied many ancient wills, people that wrote out their wills before they died, in which this word is used to describe the testator as being sane and in my right mind. Being sane and in my right mind. It is interesting, uh, just a thought here, how it's only under God and in God's word that we ever are in our right mind. That's 31 years a non-Christian. I understand that very well. <laughs> Twice the word is used in our text with prefixes which deepen its meaning. Thus the verse might well be translated as follows. If you want to follow along here, I say through the grace that is given to me to everyone he should not estimate himself beyond what he should estimate, but that he should estimate himself in such a way that he would have a sensible estimation of himself. So as we look at the verse, Paul begins it with a source of his authority, always very important, for I say through the grace given to me, through the grace given to me, it wasn't the Sanhedrin, wasn't the uh, nation of Israel or the leaders of Israel that give him this grace. It was God, and Paul is referring to him here. Paul is basically saying, in case you're wondering, God gave this to me to write. It's a little reminder here. Paul's apostleship and message was gifted to him by the risen Lord. Paul doesn't care what you feel. The truth is that I have been gifted with this grace that I'm about to tell you. That's what he's saying. We need to understand that when we have believed and applied what we have learned up to this point and surrendered to 12, 1 and 2, that we have the same authority when we are ministering in God's gift to us. This is very important to understand. It isn't coming from Walgast. It's coming from him through this. Very important. For instance, a father who knows being a husband and father as he has been gifted by his father for this, he can confront those who are against him with confidence. In other words, we can go through what we're going through and be confident in that we are doing as fathers and husbands what God wants us to be doing. We can have confidence. We don't have to have let anybody undermine what we know to be the truth. So as a father, no, this is what I'm called to be. This started way back at creation. God has showed us this, told us this. That's what I'm about, and therefore I can have confidence in this ministry that I have to my family. I don't have to kowtow to anyone because of it. We don't often think of being gifted uh, for 
what's a normality for the most part, or always have been. But at school at Marine Bible Institute, I was blessed with a young lady student one time. And uh, I asked her why, which I always did, our students, why are you at BBI? And she said, because God's called me to be a wife and mother, and I want to be the very best that I can be. And that's why I'm here. I want to learn everything that I can. What's important also is every Christian has been graced with a gift. Paul says, to everyone who is among you. To everyone who is among you. Now, he wasn't just talking to the Roman saints, <laughs> but everyone in the church, the body of Christ, has been graced with a gift. So we need to heed that and heed what Paul writes next. Because every Christian has been given a gift, he should not be carried away in pride because of his gift or the way God is using him or her or not using him or her. The Godly Father's gift is just as important to God as Billy Graham's gift of evangelism, and therefore it leaves no room for pride. This is something, again, where... It takes a renewing of the mind, doesn't it? Wow, Billy Graham, millions of people come to Christ. Who Billy, wow, you know, he's way up here. And even as pastor, I've been told you're way up here. <laughs> no, no. Um, no, we've all been given a gift, sometimes more than one. So it leaves no room for pride. Paul says not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Some examples of what that means. In Aesop's fables we read, it is easy for me to curry favor with myself. Walt Whitman wrote, I find no sweeter fat than sticks to my own bones. (laughs) Max Steimer wrote a book on the ego and his own in which he said... Nothing is more to me than myself. Whether what I think and do is Christian, what do I care? Whether it's human, humane, liberal, or inhuman, inhumane, and illiberal, what do I care about that? I care about me. This is the voice of arrogance and pride that screeches God to silence. I just want to remember when we're talking about pride and humility. Humility is God's most far-reaching virtue. Every child of God has to come to that proper estimate of himself that basically we are nothing without him. And this is what we see everywhere in our country or today. Me, myself, and I, and I'll use any means to add to my sweet fat. No to God. Just shut up to God. I want to hear about God. I want to hear about his word. I just want to add to my sweet fat. Whatever benefits me, that's what I want. And this, of course, is a result of a country that was started and founded in the 
biblical precepts of the word to now where, God, we don't want you in our country, where the church has allowed this to happen. Uh, one of the congressmen said this well just recently, where we try to appease those that oppose us, and it doesn't work. We'll never get them to like us. Those that fear to stand strong in the truth will do all kinds of things to back down and everything to get people to agree, to get people to like us. doesn't work. It'll never work. It is sad to think about how the old Adamic estimations of self carries over into the Christian life, but this verse proves that it does. This exhortation of Paul's would not be first on his list if too high an estimation of self were not a common failing among Christians. This is who he's writing to. Today we are in Christ's body with him as our head. How much more should the words of Christ mean to us today that we find in John 15, 5? He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now, that was true of the kingdom saints that he was teaching, but not true of us. <laughs> Somehow we've been promoted to his equal. Well, we can't even do that. But we'll recover in a minute. Nothing has changed in grace. Without him, we can do nothing. In fact, this means even more today after the cross. As Paul states the same principle concerning himself in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And that's exactly what he's saying. I can do nothing. And of myself, I can do nothing. Paul had become nothing, and he knew he could do nothing, save for Christ working in and through him. How much more even the very words of Jesus Christ, God with us, who said in John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Jesus humbled himself, came to earth to live a life in complete dependency of the Father. Jesus Christ, without the Father, I can do nothing. Humility gives us a correct estimate of self. Paul goes on to say, but to think soberly. M Moses is one of the uh, good example of this, maybe uh, the best example in two, for, two ways at least. First of all, he was humble, Numbers 12, 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. This word humble or meekness in the King James is a vertical virtue measuring self against God, all right? Measuring me against him. <laughs> now, some people get away with that. They can do that. I do. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think I'm going there. Um, it has nothing to do with the horizontal virtue that measures a man by other men, whether saved or unsaved. 
All right, that's what we do. We measure. We measure our ministry. We measure our gifts by someone else. God doesn't give us that. No, it's that estimate of who I am compared to who he is. That puts us on a good foundation. I can't do anything, any of the things that God uh, does. And unfortunately, the people without Jesus Christ in their life, they're going to find that out firsthand when they leave this world. They're going to be where God isn't, and they're going to find out they have absolutely no power whatsoever. They are nothing. And unfortunately, they'll be aware of it forever. So it's vertical. Moses had this virtue above all the other men on earth at the time. This meekness brought him low before God and a position above all other men in Israel, actually the world in God's eyes. God isn't us and uh, he is not like us and he looks at things completely different. Moses, in Moses' eyes was dirt and God placed him above all the other men in the whole world. This is the way God looks at things. He was humble before God. Because of this, God gave Moses the faith to go before Pharaoh and thunder forth the judgments of God. Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. Now you and I have all wondered, how in the world could Moses do that? (laughs) Good grief, you know that man... Torture him to death, whatever. But God gifted Moses, and God empowered Moses. God gave Moses the faith to go before Pharaoh and say that. This is a voice of true meekness. One commentator writes, Here was a man who thought so little of himself that he claimed he was unable to do that which God called upon him to do. But when his faith laid hold of the truth of God, he grew in spiritual stature. And when he lifted his arm to strike for God, he knew that God would be behind the blow. This broke the arm of Egypt. I end the quote there. I might add here that at least part of Moses' humility most likely came when he killed the Egyptian, jumped the gun on God, and truly recognized through that what a sinner he was. This is so important. And being around for a while and being an instructor at Breen Bible Institute for 20 years now, you've seen this in our young men. They come in with that element of pride. In fact, some are so filled with pride that they find out real quick that BBI can't teach them anything, so they don't say very long. And others can go through their uh, good people, solid people, solid in the word, and either, even for the most part, faithful, and yet have that element of pride there. And I've seen this where they come to a place where they are involved in a sin of some type, and then that pride disappears. Oh, I find out that I'm not the man I thought I was. I'm not the person that I thought I was. I thought I was above this kind of thing, but get me in the right circumstances, and I I wasn't. I didn't. 
and uh, very important. No man is, no person is truly ready for God's work until he realize, realizes that she too is capable of, capable of every sin in the book. Every one of us is capable of every sin in the book. I, concerning this, and I, I didn't know I'd be able to use it so quickly. Well, I kind of did, but I, I, in a restaurant, I saw this refrigerator magnet, okay? You know how they have all kinds of things on them? And this one said, you should never judge another for his sins. Just because they are different than yours. <laughs> that should be 101 for every Christian. <laughs> because you have them. What are you doing judging him when you have them in your life? The Bible never says we're going to be perfect in this life. We have our unbelief. And this is, of course, why we have to understand sin is unbelief. It's where I'm not believing God. And uh, we all are here uh, early in our Christianity and some of us live here a long time, but we judge others for their sins uh, just because they're not the same as I'm committing that I do, that mine are. So anyway, again, that is a good refrigerator magnet uh, for every Christian to have. It certainly helps in the humility compartment. Also important, our Father graces us with the faith we need for the gift and work he has prepared for us. And Paul says, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Very important to understand this concept. We can, and <clears throat> we all do, and I do, you know that God gives a person faith for his, his gift, and that means that no, there's no longer any um, wavering from that. That uh, now I believe God in every area of my life, and I'm always going to do the right thing. That's what this sounds like. But in reality, it's faith that when I am yielding to him and the gift that he's given me, he gives me faith to know, just like Moses I am going to see you through this. I'm going to give you the power through this. That's why Moses could go before Pharaoh, somebody that could really make his life miserable and end in a horrible way. God gives a surrendered believer faith in his gift. He has never given a person faith while taking away his freedom of choice. And the Bible proves that over and over, and we're going to look at a couple of examples when a person responds in faith using his gift, God gives him faith through that particular work. I know this is what God has gifted me for, and he will accomplish his will through my faithfulness. Now, that isn't always the way we think things are going to turn out. A lot of times it's better than the way we think they're going to turn out, and other times it isn't. It isn't going to mean that, okay, if I'm an evangelist, everybody's going to get saved. No, there's people that God's not going to go against their choice, and they're not going to be saved. Um, but uh, it's faith in God that he's going to use us. And 
whatever situation that we're in in utilizing that gift or uh, in the faith that he has given us, uh, we're going to see God at work and we're going to rest in what we're doing. I know this is what God has gifted me for and he will accomplish his will through my faithfulness. All right, one example, Jonah. Jonah had faith that God would do what he said he would do in Nineveh. We never want to get by that. Jonah had faith in that. He knew that God would go in and save a lot of people in Nineveh. And that's why he didn't want to go. Those people don't deserve to be saved. They don't deserve the truth. And I ain't going. He was my friend. He was so adamant about this and so unwilling to see these people saved that he didn't even turn to God in the tempest when he was in the boat. But what did he do? He says, you guys got to throw me overboard. What did that mean? Death. There was no way Jonah, and he knew it, could survive being thrown over into the sea in that tempest. No, I so don't want to go. So there it is. God would do it. But Jonah says, no, I'm not having anything to do with it. Let them guys die and go to hell. So what did God do? Did he make him change his mind? No. He just brought in some circumstances to make Jonah think about it. He just used the storm and the fish to convince Jonah to do his will. What's really sad is that God had no better man to send. <laughs> he knew Jonah's faith, uh, but he knew he also was going to have to persuade Jonah again. And again, he still didn't have to go, but uh, he gave him time to think about. But Jonah, by faith, knew that God would save many of those evil people in Nineveh, and it wasn't to his liking. So he made personal fleshly decisions to disobey God. Maybe a better example of this would also be Moses. In Numbers in chapter 20, beginning verse 7, we see, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded. Now again, the context here, the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness, they're out of water. Instead of going to God and say, God, you know, we need water, would you supply it? They just whined and complained and looked to Moses. And Moses, what in the world are you doing bringing us out here in this desert? Verse 10, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Moses, out of exasperation, frustration, dropped into the flesh and hit the rock What does God say in this passage? Speak to the rock. (laughs) Speak to the rock. Tell him to hit the rock twice. He said, speak to the rock. So out of my exasperation, 
he hit the rock twice. But notice Moses' words, which were probably worse than hitting the rock twice. Must bring water for you out of this rock. Moses dropped into the flesh and basically claimed to do what God alone could do. Must we bring water out of the rock? It is one time Moses loses his humility. Now, God wants us to see the importance of this. And uh, I know we talked about this before. We need to look at it again. To whom much is given, much is expected. And because of Moses' choice, God denied Moses' entry into the promised land. Verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land given them. Now, here again, this would put a lot of doubt in people's mind and the idea that Christians can lose their faith, uh, lose their salvation. And, and all he had been through, 40 years in the wilderness, uh, leading sheep, if you will, uh, not much in the way of intelligent comment, 40 years in the wilderness leading these unfaithful whiners, complainers, dealing with all kinds of doubt and faithlessness in these people. And he does one thing wrong. One thing. And God says, you're not going into the promised land. Now, he already had to spend 40 years because of this unfaithful bunch of of Israelites until they all died in the wilderness. So it made Moses having to stay another 40 years So now the man isn't even going to be able to go in. Now, what kind of God is that? Well, it's a God that wants me and you to know he means what he says. He wants people that have a proper estimate. He wants his children to have a proper estimate of themselves about here. And we have to go on. When Moses died there, when he wouldn't let him go in, he went into Abraham's bosom, which is a perfect place. He didn't go to, he didn't go to uh, the place of torment and suffering. He went in Abram's bosom. No more thirst, no more hunger, no more whiny, complaining. There's no way. You know, Moses, the moment he got there, thank you, Lord, for not taking me into the promised land. You know, so it's very important. He didn't lose his salvation. He just lost what he wanted, what God intended for him, and he did it. God did this. He wants us to see that, no, I mean what I say. I mean what I say. Moses was humble and above everybody else, but he blew it here. I didn't tell him to do this. He did it on his own, and therefore he suffers a consequence. It went for Moses, uh, in a sense. Uh, Moses went to that perfect place to be. So as we go on, in the importance of our part in the body, for as we have many members of the name function. Another commentator, people who cling to ancients about the doctrine of the church and the churches, ideas which simply are not the great reality of what the true church, we must discard many of these and return to, now this is an interesting statement, because I it bothers me at times because my main goal in life is simplify the word so everybody can understand it. Most people seem to appreciate that. But return to the simplicity and complexity of the word of God, because it is both. For you and I in our life, 
uh, the simple things have the greatest impact. But for uh, it gets too simple. No, well, God's talking to everybody, and we know. <laughs> well, we don't know how many books have been about and things. So it is complex. But for you and I in the in in our Christian life, it's real simple. In our walk, gifts and placed each of us in His body, the church, where He can use us. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. We tend towards making the gifts that of what goes on with and inside the church building. The buildings weren't even early, weren't even there in the early church. They met in houses. They were a church. They understood, no, we're the body, this group of people gathering today. The Roman Catholic Church brought back the temple image later, and the church adopted that. Christ's church is his body made up of many members. Build up the body under the edifying of itself in love, found in Ephesians 4. When a person accepts the verdict that in himself he is nothing, he can then become useful to God. The man, the person who rejects that verdict of nothingness, is of all men the most nothing. Most nothing. Again, 31 years as a lost man, I understand that. Uh, looking back and to see how much nothing I was. Just come in here, spend a little time, leave, and that'd be the end of it. No one would have uh, ever known gas or anything about it. Just nothing. Back to the dust. Be about edifying of itself the church in love. In other words, until all are building towards unity through loving one another. What characterized the early assemblies of believers was their sense of oneness in Jesus Christ. The individual Christian must seek this oneness with all of the Christians. We do. If a person truly saved, we have a oneness with them. Having been given gifts, Paul says we need to use them. In verse 6, Paul says, having then gifts, because each flavor has been graced with a gift. Our Father is gracious in this way that we may use all about him, glorify him, make him bigger in the eyes of others. It seldom seems to be brought out that the gifts are primarily for the church. This is emphasized in Ephesians. This only makes sense when we realize the church is a body of believers. All right. Take my thumb, for instance. <laughs> this... Uh, Thumb doesn't work for Brother Cox. It works with my hand, with my arm, with my elbow, with my shoulder, uh, doing what my head tells it to do. It works with me. When members of the church are unified in God, in love, God can use them to bring others to him. I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of this. What you have. See, that's what's the intention. What does the world see? Church wants my money. The church are a bunch of hypocrites. They fight one another, fight over the color of the carpet. I got that in my house. <laughs> Me and my wife fight over that. What do I need to go in a bigger group to do that for? Now I want to give an illustration here, too, that uh, our first mem camp, uh, we have... 
portable toilets and the uh, potty pumper. A guy came out later in the week to do his job. Uh, this is a guy that works a nasty job, and uh, I think Brother Doug was first with him, got to talk with him. And the first thing that I did was invite him to lunch, if not Doug, one of the two of us. Invite him to lunch with us, because it was lunchtime. And he accepted. Now, you're sitting here, 20-some guys. We're sitting here, and we're laughing, enjoying ourselves, as we would be doing in the Lord, and having a good time with one another. And this guy leaned over to me so no one else could hear him. And he says, are these guys all drunk? <laughs> this is our noon lunch. We're usually not drunk at supper time either. But <laughs> and I think it was you, Doug, that he told later, I wished I had friends like these. I wished I had. See, that attraction that attraction. This is what God is doing in these men's lives. We had a oneness. We had a, a, a beautiful time together. We were working, living together, eating together, and this man saw it, and he said, well, I wished I had friends like those. That's what the church, God intended the church to portray to the world. Doesn't mean we're still not going to get on or anything like that. This, we're going to become targets. Problem comes in when we aren't using our going to function properly. And we read that in our chapter this morning in, the, in readings. Uh, and as an old guy, I understand this. When I, while in, my, in seizures in the, in the hospital, my whole body rebe- rebelled and froze into nothing. You can't do anything but think about what's going on. Your mind is telling your body anything but it wants to. Later, with my left side paralyzed, it rebelled the left side against my right side. I want to walk to the bathroom. Well, call a nurse to help you because I'm not. I've experienced in the last year a heel spur, and when I want to go for a walk without probably complaining, that it shouldn't have to be supporting my body in this way. Let's just get back to the recliner. <laughs> That's what happens when we're not about what God has called us to, not using our gifts, trusting him through them. Another problem is forcing people to work outside their gifts or encouraging them, whatever word you want to use there. Uh, and this many are, and this, get into a smaller church is important, we, and we do have to sometimes get outside of our gifts uh, to make the uh, church function correct. brought out yesterday, uh, Mrs. Walgast brought up that she couldn't teach Corey how to tie his shoes. Now, our son has, uh, you know, a brilliant mind, he's an electrical engineer, and here's my wife. You can't teach him how to. <laughs> well, I already give you. Um, she's left-handed, so she was attempting to teach Corey to tie his shoes left-handed, and his left hand rebelled about, against that. Now, so the results were frustration until right-handed Dad was called in to teach right-handed Corey. It took me about two times. 
And he had it. <laughs> See, and that's what happens when we're working outside of our gifts. That's where burnout, frustration, things come in. And sometimes we allow people to put in they're not gifted for. Much frustration and hard feelings and giving up within the church because of people attempting to work outside their gifts. One more thing Paul says, let us use them. <laughs> we don't use our gifts today because some men say they're past, all of them. They know better, but they're actually saying we have perfect unity and are edifying one another in God's love and we no longer need to be graced with God's gifts. That's really what they're saying. I don't need it. We don't need his power. We don't need, just need to read the book. Others are afraid of God's gift because they've been misused by the sign people. Too many aren't aware that they have been given a gift, know what it is, know what God has called them to using their gifts. And this, again, uh, often comes because there are gifts like pastor teachers that are always up front, and some people look up to them and things like that. And, okay, like I've already said, uh, people have said, oh, you're higher than me. You pray, Pastor, you're closer to God than me. <laughs> no. Um, the sad part in all this, however, is that a person is never going to feel fulfilled in his or Christian, her Christian life unless they are utilizing the gifts God has graced them with for his glory. Like my dad's fingers that no longer served him, we don't serve our father in the way he intended, and we spend our lives wondering why something is missing in our lives. I got saved at 31 and loved it and loved the church, but five years later, still some things missing. Under a ministry that I was told where I could believe all the word of God, um, and uh, again, what I'd already learned, that Paul's epistles are my marching orders for today, and set me free. And it wasn't long after that that God showed me very clearly that he had gifted me as pastor-teacher. Now, I could have said, like, Jonah, well, I ain't going there. I can't talk to people. Uh, my vocabulary wasn't very uh, big when I got saved and uh, whatever. But by that time, I knew that this is what he had given me and this is where he wanted me to be. And from the first time I ever preached, I was completely at rest, no nervousness, because this is where God wanted me to be. And I have... I hadn't obeyed God. If I hadn't accepted the reality of that, I would have lived a frustrated life. And I know men that have been called to, are gifted as pastor teachers that have lived those kind of lives, frustrated and uh, not knowing, missing something but not knowing what. Very important when... um, God called me to Brain Bible Institute to be a pastor teacher there. Same thing. I always said that God always had to bring me in the back door because there's no way I'd go in the front one. Uh, if I'd have been 
if he'd have told me beforehand that he was leading me and gifted me to be a teacher at Breen Bible Institute, I'd have been on a lot faster boat than Jonah headed in any other direction. I didn't feel I was qualified. Uh, I didn't feel I was educated enough, um, but I wasn't there very long where I realized this is exactly where God wanted me, what he had gifted me for, and it's been wonderful. But fighting any of those things, saying no, and life won't be the same. But he does that with each one of us. Again, that of being a mother, uh, a, a wife and mother, and even a housewife and mother. Uh, if that's what God gifted you for, or a woman for, that's where she's going to excel. And he's going to use her beyond that. And it's no more important position or gift than mine or Billy Graham's or anyone else. So very important. We had such a wonderful God. Uh, let's tell more people about him. Father, again, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for this passage, Father. So much here personally to take to heart, to look to you, Father, to teach us, uh, show us what our gifts are, uh, our calling, Father, and to use it for your glory. And again, Father, we thank you for the church that we have. Uh, I believe that this is our attitude in the church, each member here, and we just thank you and praise you for that. And, uh, Father, again, uh, we ask your blessing on our week. Uh, Father, may we have a blessed week, and, Father, be used along the way. As we praise you now in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.